Welcome to the Scholarly Kitchen Podcast for July 17, 2013. I'm Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. In an era when science itself is increasingly driven by large data sets, it's no secret that the future of scholarly communication is inextricably linked with technology and with the ability to manage and interconnect that data. Scientists, information professionals, and publishers for years have been drawn to the promise of more structured semantic tagging of documents and data alike to boost the discoverability and value of scholarly objects. But the road from static papers locked up in PDFs to a truly semantic web of interlinked, executable scientific research products has been a long one. Joining me by phone today to talk about how the semantic web and other information technologies are reshaping scholarly communication is Anita Devard. Anita is Vice President, Research Data Collaborations with Elsevier, and previous to that served as Disruptive Technologies Director at Elsevier Science. She's also a researcher in linguistics at Utrecht University. Anita, welcome. Thank you. Well, you've co-organized, I think, uh, two conferences called Beyond the PDF, looking at the ways new tools in information technology can change uh, modern scholarly communication. But one thing we often see as publishers is that it doesn't always uh, look like users really want to move beyond the PDF. Uh, PDFs have become deeply ingrained in their workflows, and there's even you know, been kind of an ecosystem of tools that is built up around the PDF format. So given all of that, I was wondering what you think moving beyond the PDF means in uh, the current era. I think that the PDF means a number of things, really. And um, one of the reasons that the PDF is such a portable document format is that all of these things are wrapped up in this neat little package. So before we talk about beyond the PDF, it might be good to talk for a bit about why PDFs are so incredibly successful. Um, And one element of that is simply the fact that people perceive a document to be a single thing. When you write a paper, you have a feeling that you've produced something, and you want that something to look like the papers that you read as a student, the papers that you read from other people. So the formatting of the PDF is, of course, preserved. And this seems quite logical now, but um, when articles first started coming out online, they didn't look like articles at all. And people, I think, were disturbed about the fact that the layout wasn't two columns and there wasn't a logo on there. You know, the first hypertext articles just didn't feel serious enough. So Mm. I think that there's something to actually making the formatting look like something that you're used to it looking like, so to speak, that gives it a stamp of formality that people appreciate. And I think... Uh, simply the formatting of the paper is an important component of why people like PDFs so much. Another aspect is the fact that you can, just like with paper reprints, for instance, you can wrap them up into uh, a file, you can send it, you can store it, you can ship it, you can put it on your website. They are single entities. And I think, again, in the early days of, of the hypertext, there were a lot of experiments of files and documents and, and these experiments are still going on, where there were components of knowledge that were shared and that were linked to each other. And although in theory that's a great idea, again, I think people really enjoy having the ownership of a piece of knowledge that's wrapped up in a single thing. Just like I like having books on my shelf, which I may not all have read, because in some way I have the feeling that I own the knowledge that's in the book just by buying the book and putting it on my shelf. 
and I have some idea of what's inside it. I think similarly, people have the feeling that they own a paper when mm-hmm. they have the PDF on their hard drive. And right. It's a thing. It's not, uh, it's not just some sort of abstract uh, intellectual construct out there. Right. It's not an idea. It's an actual thing. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that's another reason that people really like it. And I think the third aspect of the, of the PDF um, that has come to be represented by the PDF, although it's not really necessary to represent it as a PDF, is the fact that you have a narrative, you have a story, you have a paper that is writing about an experiment, but the experiment has a reason for existing, and then there was what was done in the experiment, and then there was how it was interpreted. Mm-hmm. So that entire narrative, I think in many cases the idea of the PDF as it's being talked about in these conferences is really talking about the scholarly narrative Mm. as it's commonly represented in a paper. Well, yeah, but I mean it seems to me that – and maybe I'm just looking at this the wrong way – but it seems to me that – the PDF, you know, you you mentioned hypertext as kind of the alternative and the PDF really does seem – uh, it just as a practical matter, a more difficult thing to sort of experiment with and develop, you know, more difficult development environment, if you will, than, than hypertext is. Well, of course, there are many hyperlinks within a PDF, and I think there are many ways in which PDFs and HTML representations are merging, in fact. There is the whole issue that, of course, PDF is owned by Adobe, mm-hmm. and it's a proprietary format, and in that sense, it's it's almost funny that everybody has accepted the fact that you have this proprietary non-open source software at the core of scientific publishing. So, I mean, that could be a problem. But, but as a format, as far as I know, there are a lot of things possible. I'm sure you know about Utopia Docs. Mm-hmm. Um, so Steve Pettifer in Manchester has really pushed the envelope, I think, of PDFs as far as it, as it can go. And he actually sets people the challenge. Tell me one thing you want to do with a PDF that cannot be done, and I'll show you that it can be done in a PDF. So I think as an, as an, actually as a development environment, I believe it's quite flexible. But um, I think all of the things that we, that we talked about are much more a social aspect of, of publishing than they really are a technical aspect of publishing. I'm not sure if that answers your question, I said more why people like PDF so much. I haven't really talked yet about what beyond moving beyond it means. Well, I think you I think you did sort of suggest that you know beyond the PDF is more I think beyond the uh, beyond the notion of a of sort of a static uh, article or document maybe. And so maybe we can talk about that uh, you know specifically from the point of view of of the semantic web. Um, you, you've certainly been very involved for a number of years uh, in, in the semantic web and in various projects such as the, as the Grand Challenges with Elsevier uh, designed to show up what semantic markup can accomplish in, in sort of enabling new workflows and co- generally uh, moving scientific communication forward. But it, it often seems in publishing, though, that the challenge is how to make these things scalable. We've seen lots of great you know, demonstration projects but it still seems that in many ways we're still kind of in the evangelizing phase here, trying to explore and explain what these kinds of technologies can do. I'm curious as to how close you think we, we really are to exploiting the semantic web as kind of a, a more routine part of scholarly communication. I think this ties in actually very closely to the answer to the first question. I think that in terms of the semantic web, there have been tremendous successes technically I think technically, it, it, I remember uh, I was tangentially, you know, aware of the semantic web 
uh, a long time ago when it when it first started. I remember I was lucky enough to go to a lecture by Tim Berners Lee where he explained his vision of the semantic web, and he said it's stupid agents and intelligent content. So the idea that you would embed knowledge into content and then uh, allow simple uh, information technology tools to connect components of that content. That's really what's behind the semantic web. And it's all about brokering meaning. So you you refer to something in one place as something, (laughs) and then you refer to that thing in the same way in another place. And then you can connect these two documents without the document creators or the document owners knowing that there might be a relationship. So I still think that concept is incredibly powerful, and it has a tremendous potential in scientific communication. I think, interestingly enough, what you're saying is is absolutely right. There have been many examples, and some of them have been absolutely fabulous, um, that uh, you can try to make knowledge happen over disparate sets of documents, uh, as long as those documents uh, follow the same standards concerning how they call things. And so I think, in principle, the, the, the technology has been, has been very strong and has shown to scale. There are billions and billions of triples out there at this point. Um, there are many, many ontologies. I think, again, where it breaks down is this, very related to the first question, the fact that the output from an individual scientist is seen by that scientist, and, and this happens all across science and also, I believe, in the humanities, probably even more so, uh, to be a very personal expression hmm. that can simply be expressed as a set of, you know, drop-down menus or as a set of terms in an ontology. What the scientist is trying to convey is their insights. They're not just saying, you know, I did uh, a method X to substance Y. They're saying, I think this system works in this way. I think there might be a connection to this other thing. That's why we did the following, and then they sort of describe what they did in the lab, not in great detail, and then they talk about what they think that means. And, of course, depending on the type of paper and also depending on the level of the scientist, these are more or less subtle statements. But I think the the semantic web, of course, was invented by computer scientists who had um, a very good insight in computer science, but perhaps not as deep an insight in other fields that they were trying to model. And Mm. The main thing they started modeling was biology, and they tried to model biology in, in a series of um, acyclic directed graphs, which are things that computer scientists know how to calculate with. Mm-hmm. But I think that the, the representations that they made were often too simplistic, and the sense was that the, the subtlety of the science was being lost in these representations. So I think that might be one reason that so far there hasn't been sort of the be-all and end-all representation that, you know, suddenly solves big questions in biology. I think what's missing is the connection to a big scientific question, Mm -hmm. and then you need a deep understanding of how the science actually works to make that relationship. I I think there are some examples of where that has happened. Well, what are some of those examples, if you don't mind my asking? What would you say are some of the big uh, success stories that you've seen thus far? I would hesitate to call these big success stories. I think they're much more close to what you say, examples or or Mm -hmm. showing off what could be accomplished rather than big stories because Mm -hmm. they are still one-offs. But I think where interesting things have happened is where people have closely collaborated um, with scientists. For instance, I still love the example of what Larry Hunter made. So he's at the University of Colorado, and he made something called the Hanalyzer. 
um, which was named after Hannah Tipney, one of his uh, students, who was a biologist. And she was very, very critical of any tools that were developed. And she said, they need to make my life as a biologist better. And what they did was they built a system where they essentially represented, first of all, large chunks of knowledge as basically directed graphs, yes, but they were very uh, representations of, of large chunks of knowledge of databases and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of information in the papers went in there and such. And then the query that they gave that was not, a, they weren't looking for a single entity, but they, the query was actually a whole set of genes and they were looking at which genes were expressed in a certain developmental feature. This was the development of the palate in the mouse. And so they looked through this very, very big data set using actual experimental outcomes. So it's, it's a bit of a complicated comp- concept, but the, the, the sort of the draft outcomes from the experiment were the query into the system. So then you're really connecting your data to the knowledge system that you have. And so in that way, they managed to actually find, because if they, they made a representation of the knowledge that was out there that was relevant to the system, they managed to help order which results they needed to look at first, which genes were more likely to be hmm. expressed than others. And this is, by, this is by analysis of the queries into the system. Is that, am I understanding you correctly? <laughs> yes. Yes, so, so both the, the queries into the system and the, the knowledge base were represented in the same way. Hmm. So essentially they could talk to each other, as it were, wow. without a human sitting in the middle. Yeah, mm-hmm. I thought it was, I think it's, it's very impressive. Those kind of edge cases where, where people work very closely with a scientist to answer a real scientific question, and I think that's sometimes the reason that technologies don't scale is because they're not addressing the questions that are interesting in a, in a specific field. Mm-hmm. And then people find that they get by just fine with PDFs and they'll just read them. Hmm. <laughs> Even though, of course, in the long run, we all know that won't scale. Let's turn to the subject of research data, on which I think you're spending a lot of your current attention. Um, there is definitely a lot of data out there, and the sense is, I guess, I guess the sense we all have is that if it were somehow in the right machine-readable form and openly available, fantastic things would happen. What do you think are, you know, what do you see as the biggest issues confronting scientific communication in terms of enabling this kind of open data system? I think, in a sense, again, this ties, ties back to the first uh, two points. Science is really only now absorbing the full impact of what it means to be constantly connected with everyone all the time. It's funny that Facebook and Twitter and such took off much more quickly in the social realm than they did in the scientific realm. I think the reason for that is probably that scientists are evaluated directly on their outputs, whereas, you know, people before they, went, before they had Facebook or Twitter, there was nothing for them to lose, so they could easily shift uh, to a constantly interconnected mode. Whereas for scientists, there is something to lose. They are evaluated by the research that they produce, and until very, very recently, that was only by the papers that they published. So I think one reason for the fact that science is rather conservative compared to sort of the general public is that reason. But anyway, as we're seeing now more and more that um, people can access each other's papers uh, always, all the time, in any form, and are doing some computational methods to, to see if they can find nuggets inside those papers so that they can connect, connect to their own research, they're realizing that a lot is not in the paper. 
And, of course, we knew this before, but we never thought it might be possible to get at the things that are not in the paper. The things that are not in the paper are accurate descriptions, if we're talking about science specifically, again, not the humanities, are accurate descriptions of exactly what was done, why it was done, how it was done, and what the outcomes were. Um, so there is some representation, some narrative representation of that. You say in a rather shorthand way, you know, we did the northern blot or we did whatever it is that the method uh, uh, being used is referred to, and you kind of hand wave, and people mostly know largely what you did. And you said we used some antibodies, and you name a couple, and then you, you give a graph which shows some of your output. But I think what's now happening in science is people are realizing that by combining experimental results, they can create new science. In some fields, of course, this has already happened. In astronomy, people always use each other's measurements because they are the telescope readings, and, and they share the instruments, um, and they share the outcomes, and then they have their own interpretation of it. But I think right now in life sciences, the, the shift is very, very slowly happening, and also in earth sciences, that people realize if they could pull their experimental results together, they could do much more interesting and new science. Again, one of the reasons I believe that it hasn't happened so far is, for instance, in biology, you're, you're only allowed to publish a paper if you have produced new data. Now, I'm going out on a limb here, and there might be biologists who say, no, no, there's theoretical biology as well, and certainly in bioinformatics that's not the case. But in general, in biology, you have to make the data to be allowed to publish the paper, and making that data gives you a published paper if it passes the peer review system, and that means that you have another notch on your belt, which means you can get a job, and you can get tenure, and you can get paid. And these are very important things, obviously. So making the data openly available would mean essentially giving away all that you've worked for so very hard. So I think there are, uh, on the one hand, there is an increasing need for people to access other people's research data because they're beginning to realize that there is science you can do if you had access to, to everyone's research data. There would be new forms of science that you could do, but at the same time still a great hesitancy as production of data, the creation of data, which involves very complex and difficult experimental manipulations, is still tied to the, the fact that you mm -hmm. are a biologist. It's mm -hmm. what makes you a biologist. But so I think um, the funding agencies, at least in the U.S., are very much at this point pushing for the sharing of data. Um, NIH has just started in their uh, uh, BD2K, their, their big data to knowledge initiative um, to implement a data catalog. I think at NSF, um, I, I, I heard an NSF program officer talk to a somebody whose, whose grant uh, application had just been rejected, and she was saying, you know, I don't want you to tell me that you need to go out and do more uh, experimental uh, fact-gathering. You don't need more data. I want you to show me that you cannot solve your question with the data that's already out there. Mm. And once you've proven that to me, you have to tell me exactly what part you do need more data for, and then maybe I'll fund that expedition. Mm. So a very big shift where, again, in the past, Earth scientists mostly went out on expeditions and gathered data, and that's what they wrote their paper about. But so I think there's this there's this shift towards shared knowledge and an understanding that just by reading the paper, you'll never really get at what was actually done. And also, there's a lot of knowledge that can be gained by looking at someone else's data if you can understand it. So there's a big need there to understand what the data means, which means understanding how it was created and what 
for instance, what manipulations were done to the data. Are you looking at the raw trace? Are you looking at an average or, or, or a statistical uh, uh, calculation of some of the data or something like that? Well, I know I know that a lot of publishers are, you know, looking at this uh, this new focus on on data and data management as a business opportunity. Is there is there a role, you know, for publishers in helping to resolve some of these issues? And are there business models around that, in your opinion? I think that one of the issues that we're seeing right now is that many different groups are interested in keeping track of scientific data. Um, First of all, there are the domain-specific data repositories, um, such as the Protein Data Bank or PetDB. There are many, many of these. In general, these are are very specific databases that have been funded with public money, that have been, many of them have been very successful, and their funding is now running out. And they generally have a rather idiosyncratic way of representing the knowledge that they represent, because they didn't need to do it any other way. And they have a very high quality, and it's very labor-intensive because it's, it's done by manual curators who often have PhDs in the subjects that they curate. Another group who are very interested in becoming involved in this are the libraries. Um, so institutional repositories so far, in general, store the scientific output in the forms of papers that people have produced. But more and more, I think they're thinking of themselves as digital enterprises, as, as universities realize that their institution also produces a lot of um, digital knowledge in digital form, digital assets that are represented in research data, they realize that they should have a role to play in the management of that and perhaps the curation of that. So they're another party who wants to play a role. Then there are sort of cross-discipline places like, like Data Site, which aims to be a place where data is being cited, or Data Dryad, um, which is mostly life sciences, but also spreading out to other fields. And then there are, there are things like Figshare and also Dropbox and Zenodo, a new initiative by CERN and Harvard, where you can place as a researcher your own data and you can give it a little bit of metadata. So those are all the other parties. <laughs> and now the question is, where do the publishers come in? So traditionally, data has been associated with an article. But I think as we see this shift from people creating a data set and writing that one paper on that towards having shared data sets and papers and knowledge kind of sitting on top of that, we will see, I think, more of a distinction between the data repository and the article publication, because you can refer to other people's data sets. So, for instance, you would not want your data to be um, a a supplementary table uh, as appended as yet another PDF to your paper. So, Where I think publishers can help this entire ecosystem is um, publishers are very used to dealing with large volumes of of scientific information, albeit not research data per se, but we are used to dealing with very large volumes of scientific information that can be domain-specific and make it into a form that um, library and information repositories can consume. So that sort of craft of taking information adding markup to it so that other systems can consume it, that's an area of expertise that publishers have. And they do this across domains, and they do this internationally, and they do this independent of any funding agency, and they do it in a sustainable way. They make a business out of it, right? Mm -hmm. The gap between the domain-specific markup and the generic deposition of of data is an area that no single party is addressing because it's really not on anyone's radar screener, it's really not anyone's responsibility. And I think, in theory, publishers could help there. Um, What the business models are, we're not sure. 
there are different things being tried. Um, Nature has a data journal out, with, which is peer-reviewed, and I believe that they're going to ask for, I think it's going to be an author pays model. So that would be one model that the author simply pays for the peer review of the data. We are working on a project with Carnegie Mellon where we're looking at working with electronic lab notebook types of information systems to have repositories for data that would work for the lab locally. Um, We can imagine selling this as a service where we would, for instance, help a university set this up for the different labs with their different domain-specific needs. We could also imagine a model where we would support such an activity, perhaps in collaboration with a domain-specific research database, by providing a layer of analytics that could be sold to industry, perhaps. Um, Or we could imagine collaborating with a university where we say, we'll help you take care of your research data infrastructure. Um, And again, it would be something like a service model, just like you get help with your data storage needs in talking to to Amazon or you talk to a large data storage provider. So similarly, you could could consider the publisher to be a data curation provider, Mm -hmm. as it were. Mm -hmm. But these are all, I have to say, very early days. And of course, publishers would need to prove that they can do what they say they can do. But I think so far in the conversations I've had, people do see that this might be a good role for publishers, since this whole aspect of metadata interoperability and data curation and such, um, it's not something in the long run that scientists want to do, and it's not something in the long run that funding agencies want to fund scientists to do. Um, So there is a role for, I think, a conglomerate of um, institutional repositories, um, publishers, libraries, um, and perhaps other like software industries such as eLab notebooks to to get into. But sorry, it's still a rather little vague, but it, it is just kind of early days. Anita DeVard, thanks very much. You're welcome. Thank you so much. And thank you for dropping in to the Scholarly Kitchen podcast for July 17, 2013. Be sure to visit scholarlykitchen.sspnet.org where every day some of the sharpest minds in scholarly publishing detail, discuss, and debate the trends shaping the business. You can also comment on this podcast episode on its blog page, and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks to the Society for Scholarly Publishing for its support of this project and for hosting our audio files, and to the American Association for the Advancement of Science for use of its studio and production facilities. This is Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Until next time, on behalf of SSP and all of the chefs in the scholarly kitchen, bon appétit.